We are in the 11th portion of our uh, 12-part series on the Apostles' Creed. It's technically 13 parts because there was a summary and there's 12 portions that the church usually divides the Apostles' Creed into. So uh, 13 is an unlucky number, and that's why I went ahead and decided we should use 13 parts. So we're on the 11th part. Last week, we discussed how God is able to justly pardon you in the forgiveness of your sins, the punishment of the curse of those sins being totally placed and totally, totally placed on and totally absorbed by Christ. So that was what we had discussed last week in the, in the discussion of the forgiveness of sins. We saw how in, in moments of weakness, the scriptures console us to take, uh, to take comfort in the fact that God will faith, faithfully and righteously forgive us of our sins when we confess them to him. And so uh, <clears throat> today we come after that uh, phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Re- remember when we recited it this morning, it was, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. So the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come, you may think that those are the same idea, but they're not the same phrasing in the the Apostles' Creed, and they're not the same phrase for a reason. Um, It's actually beneficial for us that they're separate, and so they'll get their own uh, week of attention. Um, Today we come to the portion of the Apostles' Creed which says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And before there can be a resurrection, there has to be a death. Amen? You can't resurrect unless you die. So death has a poetic role in this way. It, it actually informs the way we live our lives. Um, death, what we think about the end of life, the, our personal eschatology or the end, of, the end of what we experience on this earth, that radically informs and shapes the way we actually spend our living moments. And what we believe about death and what comes after death will greatly impact us. So that is one of the goals behind the Apostles' Creed in, say, in teaching and reasserting the foundational doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. That, that doctrine will transform what we do with our lives and what we think is important. So to that end, we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at um, our present neglect of this doctrine in the American church. And I don't, I don't believe you should belittle the church. I don't. It's not my intention to do so. I think you know if the if the church is the bride of Christ, you're making fun of another man's wife. He he'll probably be a little angry. Um, we're going to look at some societal dynamics that are going on that compound the neglect of this doctrine in the church and uh, the issues that arise in our own theology, both personally and corporately, the things that come out of our uh, neglect of this doctrine, along with our influence from the society, how those things cause us great harm in this area. Uh, We're going to look at how Christ is our only hope. We're going to examine, as 1 Corinthians 15 uh, points out, the foundational necessity of believing this doctrine. And uh, without this doctrine, Christianity is meaningless. And so therefore, it's even more tragic that we fail to preach and teach the resurrection of the dead. We don't, we don't reject it or say it's not real, but through our neglect, it's my opinion that we have actually come so total in our neglect that we have basically repealed our belief. Uh, and then we're going to look at Christ the victorious one, how he conquered death completely.
So, um, <clears throat> so many churches today fail to teach or even mention the resurrection of the dead. In the American, uh, in the Amer- in the American experience, there were these things called the Great Awakenings. There was a first Great Awakening and a second Great Awakening, and while they were called a Great Awakening, I don't think it was anything on the order of the first century church spreading throughout all the world in just a few hundred years. But nevertheless, we call them the great awakenings. And many of you have heard the stories of the various preachers who would preach and there would be, you know, hundreds of souls converted at camp meetings and these kind of things were going on. Itinerant preachers would move from town to town preaching the gospel and people would be converted. And because of the great success of these events and these these movements, the work that God was doing in the nation at the time, uh, we began to, in evangelical Christianity, pattern our means and methods of preaching the gospel around what these events uh, had in them. There, the, that is, the DNA of the American Great Awakenings somehow became our basis for preaching and teaching in the church. And so our appeals to repentance have become uh, pretty much this simple sentence. If you die tonight, do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven? And that is, you know, that's a really good question. You should be sure about your eternal state. That's a really, it's a really good question. However, we have so focused on this idea of if you died tonight or, or if you got hit by a bus on the way home from the meeting, do you know if you'd go to heaven or not? Well, if you read the text of the New, the New Testament, you will see writers who are primarily not concerned with if you're going to heaven, but rather with what happens at the resurrection of the dead. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 1 and 2. It is not primarily about going to heaven, although this may sound heretical, um, the New Testament uses an economy of language. It only has one way to speak. Uh, the text of the New Testament doesn't have bold or italics or underline. Paul can't make an outline in PowerPoint. And so the only thing that they are able to use are to get across their message is rhetorical devices or literary devices like, uh, you know, chiasm or structure, repetition, uh, theme, word picture, metaphor, analogy, and primarily repetition. And the New Testament over and over again speaks about the resurrection of the dead, not if you die and go to heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And that's true. When you die, if you're a believer, your soul immediately goes to a blessed state with Christ. But primarily the concern of Christianity is the resurrection of the dead as the restoration of God's dealings on planet earth in over overthrowing and undoing the works of sin, which sin brought in death. And so in in our reading today, when it said the, the last enemy to be defeated is death means, you know, that kind of paints a very, uh, progressive, victorious picture of what Christ is doing on the earth. And at the end of all things, before Christ returns, uh, after Christ returns, in that moment, the dead will rise. And so this idea of the resurrection of the dead is the primary focus in the New Testament's language, not if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? 
And in fact, if you look for any sort of writings in the New Testament, um, this idea that almost none of the apostles make any sort of phrase, if you died to, tonight, or, or uh, they, they do say is to make your call and election sure, but the way that they tell you to do that is by examining your conduct, not, not coming up at an altar call during a, a camp meeting. So the, the gospel call over and over again that the apostles make is instead of, do you know if you would go to heaven is, do you know that Christ is king over all and that he has fixed a day on which he will judge all the men of the earth. That is the gospel call. And that is completely different from, do you know that you'll die? Uh, or do you know that when you die, you'll go to heaven or not? So because of this, um, we're, we're so neglecting this idea of the resurrection of the dead that the, the neglect has been almost total to the point that the, uh, the average teaching in a church contains little to no reference of a resurrection from the dead. You may hear it during a particular sermon at a, at a funeral or um, especially if it's you know done in a church. You're definitely going to hear some mention of it, but it's not part of the standard teaching and presentation of the gospel. But I would submit that the New Testament always includes the resurrection of the dead. In fact, um, this, is, this is the reason in 1 Corinthians, Paul is, is speaking again to them about this idea. So uh, if our neglect has been so total that we have effectively said there is no resurrection, then 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 15 becomes very important to us. It says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That is, Paul's saying, you guys believe that Jesus died and rose again, yet you never mention or, or teach or emphasize the resurrection of the dead. And so, if we fail to understand or even think about the resurrection of the dead, we lose sight of the fact that Christ has raised in our, in our stead. In verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's actually detrimental to your presentation of the gospel to your friends, coworkers, and family if you leave out the resurrection of the dead because of what we're going to talk about for the rest of this morning's uh, discussion. In verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So what I would interpret this in our situation uh, to mean for us is if we fail to highlight the resurrection of the dead as an emphasis in the presentation of the gospel, not a tangential next meeting kind of topic, but the resurrection of the dead being part of our presentation of the gospel, then it will highlight and emphasize and glorify Christ's resurrection. If we don't talk about the resurrection of the dead, we don't deal with death and therefore Christ isn't as glorified. And I believe that the Holy Spirit loves to convert those who hear biblical preaching when Christ is being glorified. If you just preach a, a kind of factual but non-glorifying gospel, um, I, I believe that that's going to translate to less effectiveness in your uh, attempts to witness to your friends and family and neighbors. And the reason I'm talking about this is because the reason the church exists the, the preaching in the church is designed to train and equip you guys, the work, 
the work of the saints. That is, it's not my goal to necessarily just preach the gospel in here. My goal is to train everyone in, and, and be trained to preach the gospel to our friends, neighbors, and family. And so it's important for us that we mention and highlight the resurrection of the dead. So I believe that the neglect of this doctrine in evangelical theology compounded with societal, the societal dynamics or the things that are happening in our culture really does, it's kind of a, it's kind of a double whammy and it really does us in. So, um, so there are some societal dynamics in our country that are taking place that I think we should examine for just a minute. Um, most of us in this church are young people and we have young friends. And so because of the fact that we're young and our friends are young, we don't see death a lot. Um, there's probably uh, a few of us who've had some friends or loved ones who died in the last few years. But I myself, the only people who have died, who have died uh, around me um, or, or near me have been, um, you know, family members who are very, very old. Um, you know, 80, 90, my grandfather, I remember him, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side passed away uh, a year or two ago, two years ago. And uh, before that, my grandmother had passed away, but that was when I was a child. And so I, I don't have a lot of people around me in my life that are dying. And so death is kind of this out of sight, out of mind idea. We hear about it in the news, but because we're so distanced from them and we're so desensitized by news media, the death of individuals is, is not very much felt by us. Um, this is compounded with some family dynamics that are going on. So in the United States, a family living in one region over many generations is the exception, whereas a few years ago, it was the norm. For example, uh, not to pick on the trim box, but to pick on the trim box, Larry's father lived on the land that Larry now lives, right? That is one of the most amazing testimonies of godly uh, transfer of and stewardship of property, but it's also extremely rare. When you think about the neighborhoods around us, they're named for people who settled and established Dayton and lived here over a long period of time. However, our society through industrialization has completely just relinquished this idea of a family staying in a place and settling and establishing. Now, to be sure, I'm not saying that every family before 1950 always lived in cities. Families always disperse, but it was more often the trend that families would live closer together. I was re doing some research for this and found uh, the great uh, beacon of truth in the world, NPR. Um, Taylor Tepper did a, did a massive study on how people move uh, and the movement in the United States over different periods of time. And she uh, found that in the 80s, uh, roughly one in five Americans, that means American families, moved every year. So 20% of the people moving around um, to different cities, this has a profound effect on family life. And so with, with the coming of industrialization, that is planes, trains, automobiles, people can move to different cities and take their possessions with them. And that compounded with uh, the availability of easy credit to buy a home in a new city where you have no history with bankers and, 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 and history with the, 
the community, this has allowed people to move, move around more freely. In fact, this is highlighted by Southwest's campaign in the early 2000s. They ran for 10 years on a phrase, you're now free to move about the country. This is ingrained in our culture. We, we have the freedom to move. I literally get in my inbox emails every single day asking me to go to Jersey, San Francisco, Las Vegas, and I think, and I read them, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, who would just do this all the time? Just, you know, hop from city to city, but people do. And so, this has had an effect. Historically, in previous generations, as parents aged, they would move into the homes of their children who lived in the same city that they did. Um, if, if any of you know uh, the McNamara's, there's some good friends of ours. When, when uh, I think it was Wayne's dad, got older uh, a few years ago, they invited him to come and live in their home because this was the pattern that the McNamara's had seen over history and this was the righteous thing to do. They, they saw that their father was getting old and so they invited him to live with them. They provided for him an established care. Well, now today, if you've got people spread out over all these cities, it may be very difficult for a family to extend care. You, you know, if you have three or four siblings living in a city, they can pool their resources and time to take care of the parents as they're getting older. But it, now if you've got people in, you know, Ohio and Florida and California and, you know, Jersey and, and Texas, how, how is a family going to come together and support their elderly, uh, you know, their parents or aunts or whatever as they're getting older? It's just not very possible. And so an entire industry has been created around the societal dynamic. Um, a lady by the name of Carol Herman established a, an organization in California called the Foundation Aiding the Elderly, which I don't really like. They actually go by the acronym FATE, which I think is just kind of insensitive. <laughs> It's, it's really ironic, but they're, on their website, you can find it. It's called FATE, the Foundation Aiding the Elderly. So this idea that she had was her, her mother, uh, I think it was actually her aunt, if I remember correctly, her aunt had been mistreated in a nursing home. That is, there were a few cases of broken bones that the story was a little shaky and the aunt didn't agree with the story that the nursing home attendants had you know, come up with. And so she created this organization and they, they set it up in California to be a, a company that primarily goes into these nursing homes and takes care of the elderly. Well, uh, she said in, her, in establishing her uh, organization that during her research, she found uh, through various writings that before the 19th century, so before the 19th, you know, we're in the 21st century, 19th century, just a few hundred years ago. Um, but before the 19th century, no, in the United States at least, no age-restricted institutions existed for long-term care. The idea of a nursing home was completely non-existent because families took care of their, their elderly. Now, there were poor homes and there were homes for those who were mentally unstable, but no place existed for just the idea of you take all the old people and put them in this building and then they die in there. And while I'm not saying that the elderly do not deserve great care, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is we tend to, in the name of 
providing better care or longer-term care for our elderly actually neglect those who are approaching death and we turn a blind eye to them and shut them away. Because we hate death so much and it hangs over uh, our head, we actually disguise and put it away and mask it. We call it a nursing home when really we put them there out of convenience. So that societal dynamic um, is, is going on, and I don't think that should affect us. I believe that while the, the elderly should receive great care, I believe it is less honoring to the elderly and has the compound effect of removing the notion of the end of life for our, from our visibility. Okay, I'm, you know, this isn't a sermon against nursing homes. What I'm saying is because we have this going on in our society, our eyes, our ears, they're not seeing, they're not hearing the notion that death is, is a real part of life. And so we go through life and we give little thought to death. And consequently, because we give little thought to death, we also give little thought to the next life or, you know, you might want to call it the afterlife, but uh, the age to come, whatever you want to phrase it. And so the, ne the neglect of the elderly becomes an ignorance of death and an ignorance of death makes us blind to the necessity of our blessed hope, the return of Jesus for the resurrection of our bodies. Uh, <clears throat> the gospel includes the doctrine of the resurrection and um, before launching into this doctrine, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he's reminding the Corinthians of the gospel. Right before Paul goes into the greatest chapter in the entire scripture on the importance of the resurrection of the dead, Paul gives a summary statement at the beginning of the chapter. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And then he goes on, if you, you, know, if you read the Bible with any context, sometimes things seem weird, but he goes on to talk for 30 to 40 verses of the resurrection. And he starts it off saying, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. But we think the gospel is Jesus came to earth, born as a baby in a manger, three wise men show up, he grows up, and then he dies, and then he goes up, and he's gone. That, we think that's the gospel, but Paul's saying the gospel it includes and is the resurrection of the dead. So Paul gives a subtitle to this section of the letter, namely that the details of the resurrection are simply a reminder of the gospel. And to answer some of our culture's deficiencies, the, the notion of the neglect in our churches of highlighting this doctrine compounded with the societal dynamic of putting our elderly away from us and, and moving death as far away from our eyes as we can, to answer these deficiencies, some portions of the church have returned to this uh, systematic instruction mechanism called catechism. And that's kind of what we've been doing these last 11 weeks. We're, we're structurally teaching the gospel. And a group by the name of uh, the Presbyterian Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, headed up by Tim Keller, has formulated a catechism called the New City Catechism. And it's taken all of these different catechisms, Westminster and, and others, and, and Heidelberg and, and things like this, and they've pulled and synthesized and updated the language to be more accessible. And to answer this concern about excessive consumerism and the neglect of thoughts of death, Tim Keller said we should start it out with this question. The very first question in the New, New City Catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? See, we don't think about death very often, and so this question is designed to point to this idea that we, we need hope in our death. 
And the answer that the catechism teaches you is that we are not our own. I'm not, I'm, John Weiss is not John Weiss Incorporated, Lone Ranger. I'm not my own, but belong both body and soul. So your rational being, your soul, your mind, will, your emotions, and your body belongs both in life and in death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's a phenomenal answer to our only hope. And the reason our only hope is this is because it answers some real questions. This responds to our culture's poverty of understanding the nature of life. And as we began the series, we discussed how there are these first order questions that man has. Who or what is ultimately real? Who is God if there is one and do I have to obey him? Who am I and what what is my role? And then finally, the first order question that we didn't mention at the beginning of this series is what is the point of life? Like I said before, death has this poetic effect to it. It informs us both of the end of our lives, but also instructs us how we live our life. And so our ideas about death and the theology that we build around death radically informs what we do with our life. So this is the church's answer to modern man and his attempts in his vain philosophies to come up with some truth. So man without Christ has absolutely nothing. And without the resurrection, life is a cruel, cruel joke. There was a group of uh, people called the postmodernists and postmodernism is alive and well, chief among whom is a man by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. He was a French philosopher and he formulated some of the ideas that then uh, people like Albert Camus built upon. And when he was dealing with this notion of the, of the idea of life, he came to this conclusion that man is absurdity. He said that the point of man is to go through a ton of things and then die. And then there's nothing. The grave swallows all. This is, this is the only idea that man can have apart from Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Camus basically, his ideas, that he, which he built on from Sartre, basically came to this, that life is a series of tragic encounters, sickness and pain, sorrow and loss, toil and sweat and labor, and then death. That's, that's all the postmodernists have. In fact, they've even developed a sub-branch of philosophy called absurdity to deal with how do we still live when we've come to this insight that at the end of our lives, we die and there's nothing. It's like they read Ecclesiastes and nothing else in the Bible. They, and they interpreted it wrong. And they saw everything's meaningless, which it, it doesn't really mean everything's meaningless. But the, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying that if you just look at it from a surface kind of point, you toil and then your wealth is given to someone else in inheritance. And that's all true unless there's a resurrection of the dead. So if all there is to experience in this life alone, then we have nothing at all and life is completely meaningless and absurd. But the Christian response is this. If there is a resurrection from the dead, we have everything. The life that we live now is not all there is. And one day Christ's victory over death will be fully made manifest. This is what Paul teaches in Titus 2. He says in Titus 2, 11 through 14, he, he's saying that before this is all the Greeks had. And um, in, in fact, many of the, 
the next church fathers uh, in the, the next few hundred centuries wrote titles, wrote the work, wrote uh, letters, and the titles of their work, uh, some of them, I think it was Hippolytus, wrote a, a thing called Against the Greeks, as in the apostles and the church fathers saw the teaching of the church as being a radical opposition to the philosophy of life that Greek culture had established and, and had taught and propagated. So Paul in Titus uh, 2 is giving a short, concise summary of what the gospel has done. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, Paul's not teaching universal salvation. He's saying there is a, there is a salvation that's not restricted to Jews. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul is saying that the gospel has come and it has transformed in verse 13, uh, verse 12, it has transformed and has trained us to live in a different way, to renounce idolatry and to serve the living God. And, and so Paul says that the grace of God in the gospel has come and it's given us a hope, a blessed hope. This is one of the most precious phrases in church, uh, church jargon, our blessed hope. That is, we as Christians believe that Christ will return. And for us, life is not meaningless. We have a hope in our life. And if you really begin to see how totally uh, over and against counter the gospel is to all of society, you will begin to see man's attempts to build false hopes or to build false gospels everywhere. Um, major political campaigns build on an idea and campaign on a phrase of hope. That is, they know that man in the world is hopeless. And so they attempt to meet the spiritual needs of the population by saying, the state will be your hope. We will provide for you and give you all that you need in life. And yet for the Christian, we know that this is impossible. So life is not meaningless. It has a very specific purpose. And therefore, we are not trapped by the postmodern desires of just existentialism. That is, something you do unique in the universe really does have meaning because it does. That's basically what existentialism is. I'm going to do something with my life because I have to do something, and not doing something is just... Uh, you know, unconscionable. I need to do something with my life and I need to exist for existence sake. But for the Christian, we exist and our life has meaning even though we die because there's a resurrection. Basically, the idea is this. If, if all that there was in life was life and then you died and you never came back to life and you were just dead and uh, you would, whatever you believe about the afterlife or or whatever, you, you're just in some soulless state if there's no resurrection. And you can't receive any of the rewards of your labor, investments, things like this. So what that relegates all economic endeavor to is just greed. And all stewardship is foolishness because you're going to lose it anyway. And so without the resurrection, there is almost no hope for anyone to live a rational, well-thought-out, 
base uh, life with some substantial basis. And so therefore, if life is not meaningless and it has a purpose, then it really matters with uh, it really matters what you do with today. You've been given a day, you've been given breath. And because life has a purpose, because there is a purpose to this life, it's not meaningless. It really matters what you do today. It really matters if you slack off and, uh, you know, completely let all of the things that God has entrusted you to fall apart and break and die. Uh, It really matters if you steward your finances well, if you give, if you serve the Lord, if you uh, work the work of the ministry. Those things really matter. And so this is the Christian response to postmodern theology. So Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. So in some way, and I don't fully understand this, but Paul's saying in, if some way there's no resurrection of the dead, if we all just die and Christ kind of defeated death and then effectively Christ's resurrection is a taunt to all of mankind because all other men go into the grave and stay there. But Christ was different and he raised from the dead and, and, lives in a real humanity, a body and soul together. So Paul's basically saying this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if you don't have a a belief in the resurrection of the dead, then Christ effectively hasn't risen because Christ's resurrection was a foreshadowing or a foretelling, a prophetic act, if you will, of the resurrection that would take place for all people. He goes on to say that if, if those who have died with faith Uh, If there is no resurrection, those who have died with faith have actually perished because, you know, they've they've died. And they have died not just a bodily death, but also a death of soul because there there is no existence of humanity in a uh, just soulless state forever. God created us in his image, body and soul. And the body is not some thing that God disregards, but rather he he came so that we could... uh, be resurrected. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, we should just live as if there's no tomorrow. And, you know, kind of the, the idea is um, uh, live and eat for tomorrow we die. And, and this idea is if there's no resurrection from the dead and there's no final consequence to death um, or there's no final end to death. And if I'm not judged, if everybody just dies the same death, then I can just do whatever I want. It's foolish to be a Christian because we deny ourselves what the world calls pleasurable. And so Paul's argument here is if you are neglecting the theology of the resurrection, then you're, you're under, the, the reason you live the, the way you live is not well formed. It's probably based on some notion of I need to go to church or some notion of it's good to be a Christian. And so I'm a Christian or, or whatever it's, if you don't have an understanding of the fact that one day all of the earth will be resurrected and God will judge all men in that day, then you're living just some sort of religious life. It's not really built on a faith and a hope that he will come and, and resurrect you. So uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19, he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or futile, and you are still in your sins. 
then those who have already fallen asleep in Christ have actually perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all most, uh, we of all people are most to be pitied. The idea is this, if, if the resurrection of the dead is not a real thing, and if we just, if our, if our modern theology just contains, if you die, where are you going? You're going to heaven or hell. If that's all that you've got, then there's no real totality to the work of Christ coming back to, to the earth. Um, basically, the message is this. If all there was at the end of your life is a state of either blessedness in heaven or uh, damnation in hell, then it makes no sense for God to have come in the flesh and lived among us and died a death and been resurrected in a body and ascended in a body. Uh, all that we learned about in the resurrection earlier uh, uh, during the Easter time, as well as the idea about this ascension that has taken place, all of that would have been pointless. If, if when you die, the, the point of the gospel is you go to heaven if you believe in Christ, then it should have been better for God to just kind of wave some sort of like Gnostic wand in the spiritual realm so that you could just, your soul could just go to heaven. But rather, there is some way in the heart and mind of God, the way that God evaluates things, that the resurrection of the dead should be the thing that demonstrates Christ as victorious overall. So the neglect of this doctrine, uh, my mention today, the neglect of this doctrine, the societal dynamics, I was highlighting that all of that for this. The neglect of this doctrine leaves us completely unprepared to face death. And it is very difficult when the flood is coming to build up the sand barges in your life. It is extremely difficult in the moment to find grace. However, if you have grown up, if you have been taught this idea, if you have treasured Christ as the one who has conquered death on your behalf, then you'll have sustenance in that, in that dry time. Seeing Christ as conquer over all of death enables us to face all of life's toughest challenges. Um, many of you may have heard about a young woman who died in the Boston uh, bombings that happened a few weeks ago. And there's some speculation that she was a Christian. She was attending a Bible study and had a number of Christian friends. It, you know, not a lot of the media really wants to highlight that angle of the story. But if she died and there's no resurrection of the dead, then all of the efforts for the church around her, the, these campus ministers who were speaking to her and, and encouraging her to grow, all of that was pointless. And so the bombers won. But if there's a resurrection of the dead and Christ will vindicate the righteous, then Christ has won. And not being prepared for that leaves you completely unable to deal with the facts of life. It also allows us to uh, mourn properly through the death of a friend or a loved one. And it also provides an anchor for our soul when we face those days of our final breath. You will die and save Jesus coming back from, you know, in the next 20, 30, 40, 80 years, however long. But you will have to face this. Your children will have to face this if you have kids, which you should. But if you're married. Um, but you will have to come to a point in your, t in your life 
where you experience dealing with these issues. And the creed does not want you to be unprepared. And the church does not want you to be unprepared. And God does not want you to be unprepared because Christ came so that you one day would be resurrected and you would be living forevermore in his presence. Next week, we're going to talk about this idea of the age to come. It's probably great that we have two separate phrases in the creed for this because of the societal neglect and the, the weird understanding. Most of us, when we think about the afterlife, um, we pretty much think of this cloudless or cloudy, stateless kind of floating around golden harps and things like this. We don't have any idea of a restored humanity walking around with responsibilities and roles and joy and fun. And we have no idea what the Bible really teaches about the next life. But my main thing would be this. We should not turn our eyes blind to death because doing that, we don't see Christ as the victorious one. And therefore we do not worship God as we ought. And that's sin. So, while death is still painful physically, emotionally, it does not have the final sting. We know that there is one who has gone before us and obtained a victory that we could not. And the primary thought of this talk today is this. You're never going to be able to face death until you see the one who has gone before you and faced it, died a death in your place, and raised again. And you won't be ready until you've heard his voice say to you, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father God, we thank you. Lord, we ask that no one in this community would be unprepared for the death of a loved one, uh, for being overlaid or, or or waylaid by news media, or, or hearing tragic stories. God, I, I am mindful of the Christians in, Syrian who, in Syria who were abducted two weeks ago, and God, I ask you that you would have mercy on them. And Lord, we ask you that you would, by your word, and through the teaching of the creed, that you would form in us an expectant hope, that we would not be living like our culture lives just for this life alone, that we would not be seeking our, the best things now. God, we ask you that you would give us an understanding of your teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, that it is better to invest treasures in heaven, and it is better to live our lives sacrificially because we know that there is a resurrection from the dead and there is a rendering and a justification of the righteous. God, we ask you that we would begin to live lives that are heavenly minded and minded towards the age to come. Lord, we ask you for a restoration of the theology of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come to, to come to every church in the United States and across this earth. Lord, we ask you that you would form in us an anchor, that you would be the cornerstone of all of our life's activities and all of our hope and all of our faith. God, we ask you that you would form in us a deep appreciation and that we would see Christ as the resurrected King, the one who has conquered not only sin, 
and not only sickness, not only has defeated Satan, but has defeated our enemy, death. God, we thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.